Demise of the podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, The Art of Memoir by Mary Carr. I'm going to do something similar that I did to Never Let Me Go and try to do this whole book in one episode. Obviously, I can't do the entire book in one episode, but, you know, I'm reviewing books and films for my oral exam during my last semester of grad school, and I thought I'd incorporate this one into the podcast just to do it so I get a further grasp of it. I actually really enjoyed this book quite a bit when I read it in 2018, so I, I don't have anything bad to say about the book or Mary Carr. I, I loved it when I read it. I think it was the only book in that entire class. Well, actually, I take that back. I also really like Persepolis. That was another book that I read for that class. It's on my oral exam. I've been thinking about changing this podcast just a little bit. Not necessarily in the sense that it's no longer going to be a quote-unquote writing podcast, but, you know, there are a lot of authors on Twitter that have podcasts, and some of them don't last very long. But a lot of them aren't very good. And because there's an oversaturation of them, where every other writer has a podcast, and it's over the same boring bullshit, and it's all self-promotion and whatnot... They're also reading just crap, and they're interviewing other writers who are crap. And You know, if you're listening to this and you know me from Twitter, no offense to you, I'm probably not even talking about you. But, you know, I want to differentiate this shit a little bit. So, uh, at some point, I will be discussing more non-writing things for episodes, and eventually, maybe just taking out the whole writing bit and making a sort of more of a multi, multi, multi-media podcast, if I can speak right, for God's sakes. You know, I'd love to talk about film. I'd like to talk about more bands and music that I like. I'd like to have episodes where I just shoot the shit, like I've done before. Wouldn't you like that? I bet you'd love it. I bet you're creaming your panties right now just thinking about it. Before I get into the book, I probably said that already, I don't do advertisements on the podcast. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, hello, this shouldn't be your first episode. But I do have my own plugs. Obviously, I'm a writer. You can go find my books on Amazon. Most of them are 99 cents on Kindle. If you want to support the podcast, buy my books. If you would like to support in another way without directly contributing money, if you have a Spotify or an Apple Music account, you can stream my music under the name Lurking Vowel. I make ambient, jazz, experimental, some acoustic white boy singing crap. There's something for everybody in my discography. So, enough of that. Let's talk about Mary Carr for a second. Back in 2018... I was a shoe-in in the graduate program for English majors. So I was only able to take one course in my first semester, and it was an autobiography course. And the professor is now teaching at Brown University, so hoorah to her. But 
she was very seasoned. She had her own autobiography stuff published. She edited an autobiography journal. But she introduced Mary Carr to us. The first book that we had to read for her class, I believe, was The Art of Memoir. And we we read nonfiction, obviously, but we read more than just autobiography stuff. And we read some critical text. And The Art of Memoir is kind of both. It, think of it as almost like Stephen King's on writing for nonfiction. Only better. I mean, really, this is a really good book. And Mary Carr wrote The Liar's Club. I have to mention the fact that she was in a relationship with David Foster Wallace, and he stalked her. If you want to read about that, there are plenty of stories and interviews with her about it online. I don't have a high opinion of David Foster Wallace to begin with. I've never cared for his writing. Okay, so the first chapter of The Art of Memoir is the past figure. So let's just jump in. At unexpected points in life, everyone gets weighed, land, waylaid, I'm making up words, by the colossal force of recollection. One minute you're a grown-ass woman, then a whiff of cumin conjures your dad's curry, and a whole door to the past blows open, ushering in uncanny detail. There are traumatic memories that rise up unbidden and dwarf you where you stand, but there are also memories you dig for. You start with a clear fix on a tiny instant and pick at every knot until a thin thread comes undone that you can follow back through the mind's labyrinth to other places. We've all interrogated ourselves. It couldn't have been Christmas because we had shorts on in the snapshot. Such memories start by being figured out but the useful ones eventually gain enough traction to haul you through the past. Memory is a pinball in a machine. It messily ricochets around between image, idea, fragments of scenes, stories you've heard. Then the machine goes tilt and snaps off. But most of the time, we keep memories packed away. I sometimes liken that moment of sudden unpacking to circus clowns pouring out of a miniature car trunk. How did so much fit in such a small space? You show up at your high school reunion, shocked to find a middle-aged populace rather than the teens you passed in the hallways decades back. Then somebody mentions she sat behind you in Miss Pickett's seventh grade English class, and somehow her prebubescent face blooms awake in you. Then you remember where your locker was that year, and that speech class came after English. And since speech was last period, we walked home across the football field's fresh mown grass, watching the boy you had a crush on in practice gear. So a single image can split open the hard seed of the past, and soon memories pour forth from every direction, spouting its vines, flowers up around, until... The old garden's taken shape in all its fragrant glory. Almost unbelievable how much can rush forward to fill an absolute blankness. On the first day of a memoir class, I often try to douse my students' flaming certainty about the unassailability of their memories. Usually I fake a fight with a colleague, professor or student, while a videographer whirs in back. 
Then the class is asked to record right after the event what happened. For the caliber of grad students I faced down, the exercise should be a slam dunk. A year or so back, almost 800 applied for six slots in poetry and six in fiction. They're all broke out in smarts, but in some oddball ways. Sure, there are Ivy Leaguers, but in poetry, we once turned down a Harvard grad for a gay ex-Marine. In fiction, a Yale summa cum laude lost a seat to a former Barnum and Bailey clown. Picture a seminar room with tables and a horseshoe and some 20 grad students, mostly in black, each propping up a styrofoam cup of lukewarm liquid. I explained the videographer in back by saying a class transcript, transcript may help with a book on memoir I'm writing. For those of you who are new to the podcast, this is not an audiobook podcast. I'm going to interject with some stories and tidbits and things that you probably don't even give a shit about, but it's my podcast. Following a script, I apologize for leaving my phone on, but claim I have an administrative problem to work out halfway through our three-hour class. At planned intervals, my co-conspirator, Chris, sometimes calls putatively to ask, harangue? Me about swapping classrooms. The students hear me be jovial and, and accommodating, though I hustle him off the phone, saying, let's talk at the break. An hour before he's due, Chris steams in, a tall, 50-ish poet with a shaved head. He's tight-lipped, his mouth into a line, and is claiming that this is his seminar room. We need to clear out. Now. We're playing against type. He's known as low-key and easygoing, and... I is, how to say it, noisy, southern. He raises his voice. I suggest we step outside. He steps forward. I step back. He's tall. I'm short. I try to defuse the situation. He says, for once, I should do what everybody else does and cooperate. He tells me to go fuck myself. Or, do I only remember it that way? Then he heaves a sheaf of papers in the air and stalks out. The students... Are agog. On the tape, they cut their eyes away from us to connect with each other. Paralyzed silence. Am I okay? The codependent kid asks, bambi-eyed. I explain the ruse, and the group's burst of laughter is a collective awkwardness. One joker claims he's suing for trauma since he flashed back to his parents fighting. You'd guess that was that these bright, mostly young fairly sensitive witnesses would nail the event down to the color of Chris's socks. And yet, around the room, with each student reading from spiral notebook or legal pad, the mistakes pop up like dandelion greens. There are memory aces, of course. Maybe one, rarely two, of 20 to 25 per, per seminar come with wizardly photogenic recall they get the facts spot on. They nail quotes verbatim and don't mess up physical details or even intervals of time. How often did he call? The wizards are dead certain it was three times with three to 12 minute gaps in between. And Chris's pants were khaki. His shirt denim, not vice versa, he wore not loafers, but black Nikes, double knotted with two holes unthreaded. Marvels, these observers. 
Reviewing student blunders in these classes, I correct details on the board, fix dialogue, and interpretive errors. By the end, we've chalked up an agreed-on version. During this time, I sometimes implant new facts. I give my adversary a leather bracelet he doesn't wear, and even give him a fiddle with it. Oh, and even have him fiddle with it nervously. Again, this is not an audiobook podcast. I'm not perfect at this. A month from the event, when asking kids to render the fight on a page, I mostly get fed this official account. What the group deems right almost always obliterates anybody's original recollections, except for those rare memory aces who somehow cleave to their original intake. It's the power of groupthink, the basis of both family dynamics and most propaganda. But worse than groupthink that warps recall are the students' original radical misjudges. Poets and trained musicians seem mysteriously keen at nailing dialogue verbatim, but they can still flub tone or even misattribute who said what. I was the one saying, we can work this out. But some credit Chris with the phrase as I jerked my elbow away. Some heard me exasperatedly sighing, we can't work this out. Who knows why half the class recalled my advancing toward Chris when I either stood still or backed up. Even my inertia, if they observed it at all, got recorded in almost military terms. Sentences such as, she held her ground, she was sturdy as a bulldog in her stance, appeared, and I was liking to granite or steel. One year, the memory star was a saxophonist and hip-hop DJ, so convinced by her acting that he almost left his seat to stop the brute assaulting me. Yet even in possession of the facts, this kid wound up speculating as to what Mary had done to make him attack her like this. The observing students' innate prejudices shape how they view things. One year, when I claimed the phone calls were from a doctor's office, a girl with a serious illness worried about me, while everybody else just resented my answering during class as a bratty move. One guy figured Chris and I had been sleeping together, and this kid half-manufactured an insidious narrative of betrayal based on our body language. A girl who'd had a stalker figured Chris was one. Somebody else thought we were both high. When I took this nonfiction course, the professor, and I want to say her name, but I also want to protect her, anonym, her anonymity. Yes, I have almost completed my master's in English and still have trouble pronouncing certain things. Probably because of my mouth or something. But anyway, she stated that there are many things to keep in mind regarding autobiography and life writing or nonfiction. Because there's debate as to whether or not we can call it nonfiction or if we can call it autobiography. See, the memory works in a certain way. And I'm just sort of regurgitating what she said to a class of 18 students that whittled down to maybe... It may not even have been 18. I mean, it was we were crammed into a small classroom that wasn't even supposed to be a classroom. It was a conference room for professors. But since she was um, a tenured professor who'd been there for years, she was able to claim it. She also brought her dog to class a few times. But she stated that every time you remember something, you are rewriting the memory in your head. 
So you're remembering it differently every time. And you'll remember that Mary Carr said that remembering something is like clowns coming out of a small car trunk. And it's kind of chaos in your mind when you remember things. And I recently had an interesting experience, and I may have spoken about this on the podcast. I'm not going to give you specifics as to what music store this was, and I shouldn't even talk about this on the podcast because these people were terrible. But the owner of this music store, that is not in my town, it's in another town, I went there, he likes to respond to Google reviews. Now, the owner of the store is rarely in the store. He has three different stores to take care of. And he's also a NASCAR enthusiast. So often on weekends, he's not there because he's at NASCAR races. He also has a family. He has other obligations. And if you own several stores, why would you be at all of them all the time? No, his manager of many years was there, and the manager was rude to me. Now, at no point during this interaction did I give this manager any attitude. I was polite. From the get-go, this manager was... He, he didn't want anything to do with me, basically. When I went up to the counter to speak with him, I didn't even get a word out. And he said, hey, have you got a quick question or something? Like, it was just his tone. And uh, I told him why I was there which is, it's not part of, of the story so much as the owner would like it to be. He thought that the reason why I was there in the first place was stupid, which is fine. But I was there to trade guitars. So this manager told me, well, we're really busy today, and I don't know that I would be interested and anything that you have, and we don't really do trades. Now, what I just recited to you is not exactly what he said. I summarized what he said. Some of what I just said is what he said, but rearranged a little bit. Now, I have recounted this several times. Now, the owner of the store who was not there got the version of the events from the manager. And each time he would respond to the review that I'd posted, he would change the story a little bit. And eventually, he escalated it to the point of him saying that I broke in front of a line in a store full of people and that I was angry towards the manager. Now, at no point would I do that. I've never done anything like that in my life. The most, the most angered I've been in a store was in Target years and years ago. And I had to get uh, item price checked because I was buying my mother something for her birthday. I wanted to buy her a Bluetooth speaker. And at Target, they had them lined up and on the shelf behind a price tag. Now, you've been to a store before. You know how this works. So I looked at the price. I said, okay, this is the one I want. And I went to the front. Now, it rang up about 40 bucks more expensive than it was on the tag. And I explained to her that this was behind this spot. It was marked for this price. 
And at first, she didn't want anything to do with me. So why am I getting to the story? I'm talking about Recall. This is a, a story of this, this novel is novel. This book, it's not a novel, is about memoir and memory. So I'm recounting this to you. And <clears throat> I waited there for a long time. And this guy that I went to high school with who used to work at Target decided that it was okay, despite the fact that there were other open registers, for him to just stand behind me in line and talk to the lady who was checking me out as we were waiting for someone to go to the back where the speakers were and check the price. Now, I waited about 10 minutes up there. And the gentleman who brought up uh, another speaker that was much smaller, he said, this is the one that's $99. The one that you're holding is for $140. And I explained to him, um, no, this was in a row behind that price. That one that you're holding was marked down to $79. So instead of fighting them on it, I coldly just walked away. I didn't raise my voice. I didn't say anything mean. I just stated the facts and then I left and I didn't go to Target again for two years. So this music store made it seem as though I was a monster when neither one of us in this scenario got angry in the store. Before I left, I was annoyed for sure because this guy was very rude to me and dismissive and he could have just out and out said, yeah, we're not going to trade with you. That would be fine. I would have thanked him for his time and left. No, it's not what happened. But the owner misconstrued it over and over and over. And really what he was trying to do was get me to either escalate this or to um, take my review down. But little does anyone know <laughs> about me is that I, I can hold a grudge. And I've waited years before I've, I've struck. Uh, and sometimes the beauty of that is that you can hold it over someone's head now and then. You can say, I still remember what you did. And they're waiting for you. They are waiting for you. Let's go ahead to chapter two. The truth contract twixt writer and reader. When I think of all the stiff pronouncements I've made demanding truth and memoir over the years, I'm inclined to hang my head. I sound like a pious twit, the village vicar, wagging her finger at writers pushing the limits of the form. Forgive me, I am not the art police. The wonderful thing about what comedian Stephen Colbert calls the truthiness of our era is that you can set any standard that blows up your coattail. Novelist Pam Houston claimed her novels are 82% true and ascribes that same percentage to her nonfiction. Fair enough. I guess in today's literary landscape, you can choose your own percentage. You can always hide behind the fiction label, as Truman Capote did, or Charles Bukowski, in 1966 with his nonfiction novel In Cold Blood, or as Philip Roth did in 1993 with his Roman Ocleff Operation Shylock, which he purchased which he published as fiction. 
while claiming it was God's own truth. By the way, um, writers don't, unless they're self-publishing something, they themselves don't publish their writing. And Mary Carr knows this, but I, I, I just find it, uh, in our world of self-publishing uh, and indie writers becoming more part of the, the mainstream, I, I think it's something that you need to note. Sorry. Ditto my favorite parts of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest are more memoir than fiction. Or you can make a general disclaimer as John Barrett did in 1994, confessing that in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, he took certain storytelling liberties, particularly having to do with the timing of events. I took this to mean that he telescoped time to move the story along. In fact, the book's murder its central drama, occurred years before Berendt got there. So many scenes, including his own run-in with the victim and a popular cross-dressing character's role early in the investigation, are pure fiction, which he at least admitted to, albeit somewhat shyly in the back pages. Um, as, a, as a fan of Midnight in the Garden of Good, Good and Evil, I should read that on the podcast. I should do a series on it. It's great. His other His other novel is pretty good, too, but... Uh, Midnight is obviously his better work. Uh, it is uh, nonfiction in the sense that a lot of the stuff in it happened. Now, when John Barrett went to Savannah, Georgia, it was, uh, I think it w- they were halfway through the second trial for Jim Williams. Now, Jim Williams' family claims that they actually hired John Barrett to cover the trial, which um, I don't think that he cooperates that story. I think he wants it to seem as though he was there, and uh, they were not—they were not keen on him incorporating other parts of Savannah and romanticizing it and talking about Lady Chablis and the other eccentric characters because they wanted it to be straight nonfiction about their their family member. So that didn't happen, of course. That's me speaking temperately as I can about other writers' artistic freedom, which I would go to the mat for. No writer can impose his own standards onto any other, nor claim to speak for the whole genre. Yeah, people on Twitter need to read this fucking shit. I would defend anybody's right to move the line for verosity, in memoir, though I'd argue the reader has a right to know. But my own humble practices wholly oppose making stuff up. As a reader, I am way less temperate in my opinions. It... I'm not going to say this word. It annoys the hell out of me (laughs) to never know exactly what the part of the fabricators have fudged. In her recent interview in The Believer, Vivian Gornick claims to falter at truth-telling, even in putatively non-fiction forms. I embellish stories all the time. This is her quote from Vivian Gornick. I do it even when I'm supposedly telling the unvarnished truth. Things happen, and I realize that what actually happens is only partly a story. And I have to make the story. So I lie. I mean, essentially, others would think I'm lying. But you understand, it's irresistible to tell the story. And I don't owe anybody the actuality. What is the actuality? I mean, whose business in it? 
whose business is it? I am going to pause here to talk about film a little bit. So when biopics are made of celebrities, and the first one that comes to mind is uh, Walk the Line, which is about Johnny Cash, the writers have to take someone's actual life and form it into a narrative, which is not easy to do. If you've ever tried to write a nonfiction piece about your own life, it'll often come off as an essay rather than a story. So, you know, David Sedaris's work, people have questioned the, the line between fiction and nonfiction with his work, but he often doesn't have a plot or at least a traditional plot for his writing. I mean, he is writing essays, and people call them stories or short stories, but they're essentially essays about his life. So he's participating in the, in the genre of life writing. But uh, bending the truth is actually essential for telling uh, a relatable narrative. So with Walk the Line, there's just a lot of bullshit in that movie, and it's an enjoyable movie, but... Uh, it, it neglects the fact that, uh, first of all, Johnny Cash's first wife was biracial. Uh, she was supportive of, of his career. He abused her. He actually would leave her even when he wasn't on tour, uh, other than you know carrying on with other women. He was a drug addict. So he had a Winnebago, and he painted the windows black and he would drive out into the middle of the desert and he would do, I don't know if it was peyote or LSD, but some substance like that. And he would just trip for days and days. And his wife just wanted him to come home when he wasn't on tour. So she wasn't not supportive of his career. She wanted a husband and there's nothing wrong with that. And they paint her as a villain and they paint June Carter cash as almost heroic as someone who saved him when in reality June Carter Cash actually gave Johnny Cash drugs and also took drugs with him. That's one of the things that they bonded over early on. And I don't know that she ever really had an issue sleeping with him when he was a married man. So just keep that in mind. Carrying on with Carr. Well, if I forked over a cover price for nonfiction, I consider it my business. While it's great she owned up to her deceits, it's hard to lend credence to any after-the-fact confession, especially one as vague or self-justifying as this one. It's as if after lunch the deli guy quipped, I put just a teaspoon of cat shit in your sandwich, but you didn't notice it at all. To my mind, a small bit of cat shit equals a cat shit sandwich, unless I know where the cat shit is and can eat around it. Uh, the, I, I have to beg the question as a reader, why is she eating the sandwich if she knows that cat shit is in it? Obviously, she wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't eat around the cat shit. I wouldn't want to have anything to do with that sandwich. I would probably want to beat the fucking guy over the head. So here I stand with my little stick attempting to draw a line in the dirt for the sake of memoir's authenticity. Truth may have become a foggy, fuzzy, nether area. But untruth is simple. Making up events with the intention to deceive. Even in the day of the photoshopped Facebook pic, that's not so morally hard to gauge. You know the difference between a vague memory and a clear one, and the vague ones either get left out or labeled dubious. 
It's the clear ones that matter most anyway, because they're the ones you've nursed and worried over and talked through and wondered about your whole life. And you're seeking the truth of memory, your memory and character, not of unbiased history. Forget how inventing stuff breaks a contract with the reader. It fences the memorist off from the deeper truths that only surface in draft 5 or 10 or 20. Yes, you can misinterpret. Happens all the time. The truth ambushes you, Jeffrey Wolf once said. I have to skip around in here, Jesus Christ. But unless you look, unless you're looking at actual lived experience, the more profound meanings will remain forever shrouded. You'll never unearth the more complex truths, the ones that counter that convenient first take on the past, a memorist forging false tales to support his more comfortable notions or to pump himself up for the audience, never learns who he is. He's missing the personal liberation that comes from the examined life. Don't you find it ironic, and this is not a critique of Mary Carr, I adore her, that she's she's already said she's not going to tell people how to write or dry long, dry, uh, draw lines in the sand, and yet this is exactly what she's doing. <laughs> Liberation how, you might say. Why isn't it just as good to make up a version of events you can live with and stick to that? If your goal is to polish up a fake person you can sell to a public you perceive as dumb, the unexamined life will do perfectly well, thank you. But whether you're a memorist or not, there's a psychic cost for lopping yourself off from the past. It may continue to tug on you without your being aware of it, and lying about it can, for all But the most hardened sociopath carve a lonely gap between your disguise and who you really are. The practiced liar also projects their own manipulative double-dealing facade onto everyone she meets, which makes moving through the world a wary, anxious enterprise. It's hard enough to see what's going on without forcing yourself to look through the wool you've pulled over your own eyes. So, when we... You know a liar. We all know liars. People who make up entire parts of their past and they tell it as if it's the truth or they manipulate memory. So I've spoken to my great-grandmother who has since passed and my grandmother, her daughter. Now, my grandmother is mentally ill and I'm not going to go into what affects her or anything like that, but... She's a compulsive liar to and a, uh, a very manipulative, toxic person. And I stopped speaking to her when I was 11. At that age, I knew I couldn't have anything to do with this person in my life, someone who was trying to separate me from my mother my entire life. So, um, my grandmother told me that and this was after her father had died that she told me this, and I was very close to her father, my great-grandfather. She told me that when she was a teenage girl, she ran off and uh, tried to get married to her teenage high school boyfriend, who was not my grandfather. So my grandfather finds her, brings her home. And according to her, he held a gun to her head in front of her mother and her older sister. 
And as she pleaded for her life, he threatened to kill her for doing what she did. Now, I've heard a lot of stories about both my my great-grandparents and my grandparents, but this story has uh, a major flaw in it. She said that her sister and her mother just stood there and watched it happen. They didn't cry. They didn't scream. They watched it happen as if she deserved to have a gun put to her head. Now, there's nothing else that I was ever told about my great-grandfather that made this align with this character. So I spoke to my great-grandmother, and I told her this version of the story. And she said, that is not what happened at all, and I and her older sister were not even in the room. So what happened? From her recollection, from what she overheard in the, from the other room, he sat down. He held a gun in his hand. He didn't point it at her. He didn't hold her to the floor while she was screaming and crying and threatened to kill her. What he did was he said to her very calmly, if you run off with that boy again, I'm going to take this gun and I'm going to shoot him in the head. It's not a nice memory. I'm not saying that he was right to do that, but a lot of parents have done things like that. Now, these are two very different stories. The only similarity is what led up to it and the gun. Now, my grandmother believes it because I happened to speak with her on the phone a little later because of something that happened, and I wanted to tell her, you need to leave me alone. So, she said, everything that I've ever told you is the God-honest truth. And so she, since she brought that up, I brought up that the fact that the Bible says that if you lie long enough, you're going to start believing your lies. And she said, everything I've ever told you is the God-honest truth. And I had spoken to my father. I'd spoken to my great-grandmother. I'd spoken to one of her ex-husbands. And I've also spoken about her to my grandfather, who can't stand her. They all had similar stories about her being deceitful and a liar so of course her version of that event while it may be valid for her it didn't it probably didn't happen that way now there's no way for me to go back and see and the fact that that man is dead now and my great-grandmother's dead now and my grandmother is just living with her husband and crocheting and doing what she does you know, none of it matters anymore. So it doesn't matter what actually happened. But for the sake of memoir, I probably couldn't write about it without writing both versions of those events. I'm skipping ahead a little bit and then we'll get into chapter three. Lest you think I'm some crazed lone gunman for the truth, I offered this fact. The autobiographer's whose practices I've admired up close over the decades have, almost to a one, shown their manuscripts around pre-publication, and none faced major challenges to their versions based on family complaint. My samples include Joffrey and Tobias, Jeffrey and Tobias Wolf, and Lucy, Lucy Greeley, and former Syracuse students Corin Zalikas and Cheryl Strayed. Also yours truly. 
I was asked by a minor character to cut a a tangential anecdote in my last book. See, I can read. Other than that minor blip, no one I know has overhauled pages based on family outrage. Um, By the way, uh, we read a book about this very thing called Family Trouble. But interviewers and audiences are gobsmacked when I mention this. No one believes memorists aren't constantly assaulted by detractors and naysayers in lawsuits. How is that possible? Well, as Frank Conroy said of his mother's response to Stop Time, she felt it was my best version of events. The best memorists stress the subjective nature of reportage. Doubt and wonder come to stand as part of the story. We also have to distinguish between memories wrangled over at the supper table and memoirs combed over and revised dozens of times before being published. This makes me feel so bad because my last novel, Surviving New America, it was written a lot differently. And this is this is a writing podcast, so I can talk about this shit. And if you don't like it, sh- fuck off. But... I spent nine years writing my first novel, Demise of the Trinity, and I know that novel very well, and yet when I put it out, I had people complaining about errors and typos and shit, when a lot of this stuff was based on diction, um, and who the fuck cares at the end of the day? It's a self-published novel, and you know, I did my best. I spent nine years working on it, and I didn't really want to read it over again after having two beta readers read the fucking thing. And I didn't want to pay for it to be professionally edited. I figured my bachelor's in English was good enough for that. But beyond that, Surviving New America has had no complaints about it. And I spent less than a year writing that novel. And the revision process went as such. I wrote the novel the first draft of each book in the novel, because there's two books in the novel. And I read the novel, that manuscript, on my Kindle. And I made any corrections to any errors I saw. I made any changes I wanted to change. I didn't rewrite entire chapters this time around. And less than a year after I'd started it, I put it out and published it. It wasn't combed over dozens of times, but I'm not writing memoir, okay? The New York Times calls people that are in your stories when you submit to them. Did you know this? If anyone in your story that you've submitted to them and it's a nonfiction story is present, they will ask to speak to them so that they can verify the events. Otherwise, they're not publishing it. Everybody's personal history is jam-packed with long, wheedling family arguments in which every reporter represents a personal view of history as irrefutable reality. Such arguments are private and informal, and we tend to argue as if we're right to st- for stone certain. We've all wallowed in such never-resolved mudholds. Common memory rifts involved either unknowable interpretations, someone's inner intent or motives, or chronologically dates or how long something went on, or how often, or disagreements about place, where something went down. We all screw up such facts. It's true. Either unintentionally or in a heated crusade to prove our private takes on family history. Many a loved one has engaged in hyperbole or stretched the bounds of evidence 
or dug in her heels to prove a point that's wrong. How many times have you spoken to someone about something that happened to them? And they said to you one version of the story, and then they elaborated on it more, and maybe even changed something, or said, no, this happened first, this happened before then. And it all it's different from the first time they told you the story. It's not necessarily that they're trying to manipulate you or lie to you. It may just be that they're remembering it differently. Or certain details that they neglected to tell you are coming more forthright in their mind. But ask yourself, how many of your clan would just flat out make up stuff that everybody knows is bullshit, then publish it? Publishing lies require a whole different level of sociopathy. For veracity's sake, it doesn't cost a memorist the reader's confidence either to skip over the half-remembered scene or to replicate her own psychic uncertainty. This part is blurry. Any decent comp teacher schools you to work in the realms of maybe and perhaps. The great memorist enacts fuzzy recalls, uh, enacts recalls fuzzy form. I am not dyslexic. That's why we trust her. So... For this autobiography course, I had to write my own story. Now, I'm not going to tell you what the story is about. Now, one of the listeners knows this story. And if my wife ever listens to this, she'll know the story because it was about her. And it's about us getting married. This is one of the few short stories that I've rewritten. I rewrote it three times for the class. So each draft that I turned in was completely different than the one before. But I was telling the same story. Now, when I first thought to tell the story, I thought it would be about me and my wife. But what I realized is that it was actually about her. And what happened to me in the story was uninteresting. Because I can tell you what happened to me in a sentence. That's it. I was there for that. So, in order to form a story around a memory... I had to invent some events that I wasn't present for. I asked my wife about it, obviously. Just like when I wrote a story about my wife and her sister, I messaged my sister-in-law and asked her specifically what happened here. And it was a painful memory, but I wanted to write about it. So she told me, and uh, her version of the events synced up with my wife's version of the events. So there was that. So we're still in the second chapter, and we've got some some rules or some outlines for memoir that Mary Carr is outlining for us. For the record, here are the liberties I've used, which all seem fairly common now. Number one, recreating dialogue. I've often said the conversation went something like this, but most readers presume as much. Also... By not using quotation marks in later books, I seek to keep the reader more inside my experience. The subjective nature excuse the standards of history, I think. Number two, changing names to protect the innocent. Most of my friends had a hoot choosing their pseudonyms. Number three, altering the name of the town. Most minor characters like the sheriff and school principal I don't bother to track down. They might be dead, but if they're alive, I don't want the responsibility of perhaps misremembering them. Number four, 
blurring details of somebody's appearance for the sake of their privacy. I've done this many times for minor characters, a mayor, say, but for the neighborhood rapist and liars club, I didn't want folks in my hometown to mistakenly blame one of the local delinquents. I gave the culprit braces, which nobody in our neighborhood had, and changed a few other things. With lit, I hoped my ex-husband would vet the manuscript pages, but when I spoke to him in advance, he claimed to prefer being blurry. Number five, moving back and forth through time when appropriate and giving info you didn't have at the time, which breaks the point of view. If your next-door neighbor turned out to be, say, Ted Bundy, you might mention that in parentheses because you know the reader would care to know. It's still apparent when I do this that I speak from another time. Number six, telescoping time. Seventeen years later, Daddy had a stroke. Or using one episode to stand for all the seventh grade. The action points for a given period represented wholesale. I skipped dull parts. Number seven, shaping a narrative. Of course, the minute you write about one thing instead of another, you've begun to leave stuff out, which you could argue is falsifying. What was major to you might have been a blip on someone else's radar. Number eight, stopping to describe something in the midst of a heated scene, when I probably didn't observe it consciously at that instant. This is perhaps the biggest lie I could ever tell. I do so because I am constantly trying to recreate the carnal world as I lived in it. So, I keep concocting an experience for a reader. I have taken that liberty, but because I'm Catholic, I feel guilty about it. Number nine, changing something to protect a friend at her request. My friend Meredith had been a habit of asylums. I've, I have never read that, that. I think it's a French word. I think she means a resident. But still didn't want me to publish a school, a school scene of her razoring at her wrist because it would torment her aging mother. She agreed to let a mutual friend stand in for her, so the suicidal friend is Stacy in the first edition and Meredith in later ones. The great thing about reading paperbacks on this podcast is it takes me forever to turn a page. Number 10, recounting old fantasies. My inner life is much bigger than my outer life. And some fantasies from the past seem godly true. Of course, I say they're only fancies, not fact. In Liar's Club, I also made up two of the tall tales, which are meant to be bullshit anyway. Number 11, putting in scenes I didn't witness but only heard about. Though I admit as much, from lit, so vivid, so vivid is the story of Mother's final drunk with Harold, so painterly in its grotesque detail that I take the liberty of recounting it as if I were there, for a good story told often enough puts you in rooms never occupied. Number 12, vis-a-vis interpretation. Be generous and fair when you can. When you can't, admit your disaffinity. My general idea is to keep the focus on myself and my own struggles, not speculate on other people's motives, and not concoct events and characters out of whole cloth. The whole business of this oral exam that I'm taking is so absurd to me. I have to study, I'm not going to, but I have to remember in detail 75 different texts. Actually, it's more than that. I think it's, is it 20 or 30? 
Who the fuck cares? I have 25 minutes to discuss these. The professor's not going to ask me about all of them. They're going to ask me questions like, put this into context with this, talk about this, la-di-da. You know, I could talk about Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison for a good hour, maybe two hours. But, in fact, I might do it on this podcast if Chris doesn't do it on his podcast. Which, if you haven't listened to misanthropic musings, you're missing out. Because my friend Chris is a, is a great cocksmith. But anyway, let's get into chapter three before I say something else stupid. Why not to write a memoir, plus a pop quiz to protect the bleeding and box out the rigid? Asking me how to write a memoir is a little like saying, I really want to have sex, where do I start? What one person fantasizing about would ruin the romance for another. I want to chime in here. Um, I, I wish that that there were more how-to information out there for sex because porn is not is not a great guide, and experimentation can lead to bad things. Uh, sexual trauma is a real thing, even in consenting relationships. So just keep that in mind. Uh, I don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, it depends on how you're constructed inside and out hormone levels, psychology, or it's like saying, I want to make over, how should I look? A goth girl's not inclined to lime green fair aisle sweaters and preppy scorns black lipstick. I've said it's hard. Here's how hard. Another interjection here. Isn't it interesting that Mary Carr makes this distinguishing factor between two women? Uh, goth and preppy. This is high school terms, people. Everybody I know who wades deep enough into memory's waters drowns a little. Between chapters of stop time, Frank Conroy stayed drunk for weeks. Two hours after Carolyn C. finished her first draft of Dreaming, she collapsed with viral meningitis, which gave her double vision. Uh, interesting that a memoirist would be drinking as they were writing. Alcohol affects your memory. Anyway. Martin Amis reported a suffocating innervation while working on experience. Writing fiction, however taxing, usually left him more buoyancy at day's end. His memoir about his father drained him. Jerry Stahl relapsed while writing about his heroin addiction in Permanent Midnight. I used to crumble to the floor of my study afternoons like a long-distance trucker. I'd have to claw my way out of sleep. When I once asked my shrink if I was repressing some memory, he said, Nah, you're just really tired. I also remember turning the last page of a manuscript with my editor and feeling fever crawl up to my face. 103 degrees. I had pneumonia, which I'd never had before. Um, stress does that to you people. When I would finish a semester in college, I would get sick. When I had my first kidney stone, it was literally the day that I had my last interaction with a professor, spring semester 2013. I got the worst case of bronchitis in my life in uh, that same year, December 2013. I considered committing suicide, it was so bad. So, 
Uh, stress from school and work, although I have found that uh, while I do get stress from work, I generally don't carry it on after work, uh, especially with my newer job. But um, stress from school, deadlines and such, things that you're, you're supposed to do in your free time while managing a personal life, it's very difficult. My wife just texted me to come back. How long have I been at this, people? I don't know. Finally, put it aside. Put it out of your head at least a week. You want it to set like jello. And when you pick it back up, ask yourself, what haven't I said? How might someone else involved have seen it differently? And most of all, how am I afraid of appearing? Go beyond looking bad or good. Is there posturing or self-consciousness you could cut or correct or confess or make use of? At the nadir of my confidence as a writer, I despaired of ever finishing lit. I considered selling my apartment to give the, adva the advance money back. Then a Jesuit pal asked me, quite simply, what would you write if you weren't afraid? I honestly didn't know at first, but I knew finding the answer would unlock the writing for me. Now, you may not know what you'd write if you weren't afraid. I seldom do. It's a moment-to-moment -moment struggle. But if you're passionate to find out, then you're ready. God help you. By the way, as a self-published author who does everything for himself, I never, ever want a book advance. Ever. That would lead to me writing a shitty book. I could write a novel in a three-month span of time and then turn it into editors and la-di-da. But if I have the pressure to pay back this money, then what the fuck? Which, by the way, record labels and publishing houses are, are just Tony Soprano without the crowbar. They have lawyers. I've had enough of this, okay? So next week, I may do a part two of Art of Memoir. Now... If you're disappointed, if I don't do a part two, well, get over it. But I have a feeling that there is going to be a part two because I think the next text that I'm going to cover on the podcast is going to be The Kiss because that is the next book that I'm going to be reading for my oral exam. Maybe not. I said I might do white teeth. I'm not going to do white teeth on this podcast. Hell no. But... I am going to be actively reading a few more books for this oral exam, which I don't know when is going to happen, you know, and I don't want to think about it. Quite honestly, I wish I could push it off until next year because I've got too much on my plate. But this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the podcast. Happy reading. Happy weekend happy reading happy writing if you're a shitty writer just give it up bye <laughs>